We're a week away from Christmas, and it's such a remarkable time. But I hope, like you, you've discovered being in the Christmas season and being in the Christmas spirit is not the same thing at all. And there's this odd dynamic in all of our lives about how we feel, and we talk about them and call them moods. And moods are actually an important part of your spiritual life. You can divide all moods into good moods or bad moods. We all tend to be in one or the other. You can glance at your neighbor and tell. A good mood is joyful, grateful, generous. A bad mood is negative, irritated, stressed, sad, morose. When you're in a good mood, everything looks better to you. Not only are you happy, but the future seems to be brighter. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you're a little more happy about it. Other people look more attractive and nicer to you. Your job or going to school is a little more fun to you. You only get to go through the days of your life one time. You know, even Bud Weiser knows you only go around once in life. Sometimes their theology is good. So what would you like for your mood to be? And what, what are you doing to move towards that? Moody people have fewer friends. They have less intimacy in their family with people who they would really want to love. They're less generous. They're more self-absorbed. And there's this really important connection with our spiritual life and our moods. Uh, on the one hand, being close to God is not the same thing as being in a good mood. Sometimes we confuse that. If somebody asks, how are you doing spiritually? Well, we typically think, well, if I'm happy, then God must be close. If I'm not, he must be far away. Well, excuse me, bad people can be in a really good mood. They could win the lottery tonight. You know, it doesn't mean they're close to God. The cartel could make a big shipment, make a billion dollars. They'd be happy, but they wouldn't be close to God. On the other hand, there's this importance to know about God. It is important. God wants you to be in a good mood. The Bible says the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer is stuff like love and joy and peace and kindness and temperance, and that will affect your mood. Moods are quite contagious too. So not only does God want you to be in a good mood, other people in your life would like for you to be in a good mood. If my wife, if my kids are in a good mood, I get the spillover for that. That's kind of a gift to me. If people I work with come in, they're in a good mood, it puts you in a good mood. As a church summit, we want to be a place where when people come to our church, they're greeted by people who are in a great mood. They are taught by people who are in a great mood, and we're led in worship by people who are in a great mood. You know, ugly face, go home. <laughs> On the other hand, following Jesus is about something a little more different than just wanting to be in a good mood all the time. If I actually want my life, including my moods, to be redeemed by God, I'll have to die to my insistence that life must always be doing stuff to put me in a good mood, because it won't be. See, Jesus actually came, among other reasons, to impact the mood of the human race. Now, how he does that depends on people's receptivity to him. So I thought we'd look at some of the characters in the very first Christmas and what happened when they found out Jesus was present with them. Are they in a good mood or a bad mood? Because Jesus is now with them. So let's take a look at a few. 
Scripture says when the Magi, also known as the wise men, saw the star, they were overjoyed. Are the Magi in a bad mood or a good mood? It's an open book quiz, folks. They're in a good mood. The shepherds find out God is present with Jesus. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God. So the shepherds, they're in a good mood. Jesus is here. Then there are the angels, and it says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. So it looks like the angels are in a good mood. I mean, nowhere in the Bible do you ever read about a grumpy angel. They're probably always pretty, pretty happy. But the coming of Jesus just makes them sing. Maybe the most remarkable example of impact on a mood is Jesus' mother, Mary. She's pregnant with Jesus. She goes to visit a relative of hers named Elizabeth. Elizabeth is also pregnant with the guy that's going to be John the Baptist. So all Mary does is walk in the room in her pregnant condition, and this is what the text says. In a loud voice, Elizabeth explained, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So what kind of a mood was the fetus in? A little happy fetal mood, fetal joy for the first time in human history. So Jesus is apparently a very powerful mood-enhancing force, but he doesn't always put people in a good mood. Another character in the story is a guy named Herod. He's called Herod the Great. He wanted to be the greatest, and anybody who was going to be greater than him was a threat to his kingdom. So Jesus comes along. Herod wants to snuff him out. The Magi don't cooperate with him and don't tell him where the baby is. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he became furious. He gave orders to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and vicinity who were two years old and under. Let me pause there for a second because people miss this. In the nativity scenes, the wise men are always at the manger with Jesus, right? But if you go back and read the scriptures, when they came to Jesus, he was in a house. He was a toddler. This does not change anything in theology. It's just an observation Jesus wasn't in the manger, and that's why Herod had him from two years old down killed because he was already uh, running around the house as a toddler. So what would you say, what kind of mood was Herod in? A foul mood. You know, when somebody with a lot of power is in a really bad mood, it gets really dangerous for a lot of other people. Herod had what you might call a mood disorder. Some of you suffer from that. <laughs> the idea for a lot of people, uh, when we think about what mood we're in, we make this association in our mind. My mood is basically a product of whatever circumstances I happen to find myself in. Now, that's pretty dangerous. Uh, if I have good circumstances, I make some money, I win the lottery, I get a good grade, somebody praises me, somebody likes what I'm doing, well, I'm in a good mood. If I'm in bad circumstances, something bad happens, I flunk a test, I face criticism, the doctor found something on the x-ray, then I'm in a bad mood. I just kind of go through my days. I wake up in neutral. I expect life to give me good stuff. If it does, I'm in a good mood. If it doesn't, I'll be in a bad mood. So Herod was a very moody guy. All this money, all this power didn't make him happy. Uh, historians say he had either 11 or 12 wives. <laughs> 
What a glutton for punishment. <laughs> he had only one wife that he really loved, and her name was Mary Ann. At one point, he was convinced she was a threat to his throne. So he had her executed, the only woman he ever loved. He had a son by Marianne, and he was afraid that the son was going to try to take power, so he had his own son executed and two others of his sons. When his barber said to him that he thought it's not good to be executing your sons, he had his barber executed. Herod was such a mean guy, really, that when he was on his deathbed, it was pretty clear nobody in Israel was going to be sad. So he had 70 of the most prominent citizens of Israel rounded up, locked in a room, and left orders that on the day he died, all 70 were to be executed because when he died, he wanted there to be some crying in Israel. And he knew nobody's going to cry for him. So he said, I want 70 innocent, prominent people to die on the day I die so there will be mourning in Israel. So I was thinking if Having a lot of power and a lot of money and the ability to alter your circumstances ought to make you happy, and most Americans think that way. Herod should have been the happiest guy on the planet, but he was a miserable train wreck. And by way of contrast, there's this young girl. She's a teenager. She's got no money. She's got no influence. She has no Instagram account. She has no power. Her name is Mary, and she gets visited by an angel from God. And then all these extraordinary things happen to her. And she, she takes a look at them and she absorbs them, what the angel's been telling her. And there are two words that I'll read in a second that really are important. It is the word treasure and ponder. Everybody's kind of running around, active, but Mary, Scripture says, treasured up all these things, the angel had said, and pondered them in her heart. To ponder means you think about something deeply. You reflect on it. She would talk to God about it, try to discern what's going on. Mary would ponder, and then Scripture says she would treasure. To treasure means you find great value in these thoughts. You delight in them. You savor them. You turn them over and over in your mind. They move you to worship. I mean, you're really thinking on this. Now, as a general rule, whatever's going on in your life, your mood will tend to reflect what you habitually ponder and treasure. Could be your money. Could be your grades. Could be your looks. Could be your health. Could be your success. Could be God who is present with you in Jesus and loves you. You know, in, in the few moments we have left, before you get back out in the maze of 281 traffic and get in a foul mood, uh, I want to walk through five practices to engage in this week before Christmas so our moods can be guided by God. So here we go. Here's the first one. Number one, wake up and ask the Lord to set your mood. Wake up and ask Jesus to set your mood. Now, you can do this first thing in the morning. This is a really good thing to do because how you wake up in the morning is kind of a key thing. Did you know? Did you know? There are people who are morning people. They love to wake up early in the morning. How many of you are early morning people? Look at those hands. Now, how many of you hate people who love to wake up early in the morning? <laughs> We will actually say sometimes to people, if they seem grumpy, you must have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. Well, what side is that? Now, I know you're not going to believe me, but this is actual research. There is a sleep disorder scholar by the name of Neil Robinson, 
And he did a study of over a thousand people and actually found out there is a correct side of the bed. I'm not making this up. He actually found out that if you get up on the left side of the bed, you are between 4 and 10% more likely to be in a better mood, to be a friendlier person, to enjoy your job or your school more than if you get up on the right side of the bed. Now, now here's the idea on that one. As a believer, when you get up in the morning, you know, don't worry about right side, left side. You, you have some authority here. When you get up, make a commitment. It's you're not going to start the day, that moment, all the stuff I have to do, all the problems I got to solve, all the questions I have to answer. I'm not going to start that way. The idea is starting tomorrow, this week before Christmas, when you wake up, instead of anxiety, recognize this is God's day. This is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice in it. If it's a poopy day, a crappy day, it is the day God made. I'll rejoice in it. And God is going to take me through that day. It's all in God's hands, and God loves making every day fresh. There's a wonderful statement in the Old Testament where the writer says to God, God, your mercies are new every morning. I love that word new. The idea isn't just that God is always a merciful God. He is. It's almost like when you were sleeping, God was in the kitchen spiritually cooking up a batch of fresh mercy. He loves doing that every morning. Do you understand God never gets tired of being God? His mercy endures forever. There's one psalm in the Old Testament, every verse of the psalm, and I forgot the number, says His mercy endures forever, His mercy endures forever. I was with Jack Taylor many years ago at a James Robinson conference, and we were speaking, and, and I heard Jack Taylor say, Lord, why, how come every verse is your mercy endures forever? He said, because my mercy endures forever. It never wears out. I've never, I never say with you, I've had it. That's enough. It's over. Get out of my sight. Never happens. So it's important to know God never gets tired of whipping up a new batch of mercy. When he faces every day, God never gets bored. Now we get into this cramped way of living that's so different than God. You know, we see what I want to talk about in little children. We just saw them. G.K. Chesterton talks about how God is like a child in this way. And here's what he writes. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. Grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But he writes, Perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he's never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. What a fabulous statement. We have sinned and grown old. You know, sin isn't good. Sin doesn't bring life. It'll really make you old. We have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. So tomorrow morning, when you wake up, and try to be young. Say, God, do it again. Bring the sun up again. Bring those same people into my life. Give me another shot at them. You know, let me, let me love them. Give me some moments where I can be so glad to be in this world with you. 
God, heal me from sinning and growing old. You know, the first practice when you wake up is just seriously, just ask you, Jesus set my mood today. Don't let my mind wander. Don't let my circumstances set my day or my mood. This day is on your schedule. Didn't catch you off guard. Might have caught me off guard. Didn't catch you off guard. And you're with me. You'll never leave me or forsake me. And we're going through this day together. So I'm going on, I'm on to hold my mood. I'm not going to let the circumstances dictate whether I'm a grouch or, or not. Sometimes I fail. I just thought I would throw that in in case you're curious. Sometimes I don't do that real good. I have to repent. I'm looking at a crowd of absolutely glow-in-the-dark people. I mean, you must be amazing. Do you ever fail at that? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't do it habitually, but it does happen. Second, be intensely curious about Jesus. It staggers me how we'll come together, talk about God, sing about God, study about God, and people will go on autopilot like Christians in church, like, yeah, know that, heard that, been there, done that. What? Nothing staggers you? If nothing else, be staggered by the immensity of God and the mystery of it all. You know, we look back on all these characters at Christmas and we think, well, yeah, Rick, you know, it was easy for them. We live in a day of science and modernity. This is all probably quite easy for them to believe. Really? When an angel came up to this teenage girl, Mary, and said, blessed are you, favored among women. God is going to come and be with you. God is going to give you a child. Her immediate response was not one of easy belief. Mary was greatly troubled at this angel's words and wondered what this means. I mean, she says to the, she challenged it. She said, look, dude, I hadn't slept with anybody. What are you talking about? I'm going to be pregnant with God. I mean, wouldn't you think that might set your hair on fire if you heard that? I mean, we just read the Bible casually and we don't, we, we don't capture how staggering it is. See, she had her own barriers to faith. She's brought up as a young Jewish girl to believe God was one and God could never, ever occupy a human body. God could never be in the flesh. And that's why the second commandment, never make an image of God. So this idea that God was going to come to earth in human form and for all of us just to be staggered for this omnipotent, all-knowing God to limit himself to a human body with the same fingers and toes, to get hungry, to be tired, to cry, you know, and he had to go to the bathroom. This is Jesus. I mean, some of you have a Jesus that doesn't do anything. Uh, I'm thinking he was perfectly normal. The only thing unusual about him was he didn't sin. Yeah, that's, that's a big difference <laughs> from us. But in the human form, he was just like us. I mean, he had to wear a diaper. He pooped his diaper. I know one of the songs says, The little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. Are you kidding me? <laughs> he cried. He nursed his mother's breast. He was a baby. He came just like us. The Bible says he was tempted in all points, just like we are, yet without sin. So some, when I think of the immensity of that, it's kind of like, whoa. just kind of blows my mind. Now, here's another great line from G.K. Chesterton. He says, you think about what it means for God to lie in a manger as a baby. And he writes, the hands that had made the sun and the stars were too small to touch the heads of cattle. 
How can you have thoughts like that and not just go, God, what are you doing? How amazing you are. We read the Bible, we come to church, we sing the songs, we say the words. I, I remember reading about a church in Minnesota. It was a Lutheran church. And when computers first came out, they found out that if you had a funeral service, the computer could just spit out the order of the service. If somebody else died, you could just replace the name, but have it spit out the same order of the service. And that was fine until one time they had a funeral for a woman in the church named Mary. Then the next person who died was a woman named Edna. They told the computer, just reproduce the funeral service, but replace the name Mary with the name of Edna, here's the key, wherever you find it. And that worked good until they wanted to recite the Apostles' Creed. And it says, I believe in Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Edna. It's kind of like, what? That doesn't sound right, Virgin Edna. No. So we sing these songs with these amazing words at Christmas. Veiled in flesh in the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. See, God loves you so much he came to earth to be one of what I am, one of what you are, to live in a body just like mine, to know what it is to grow, to experience pain, to be sad, to be hungry, to be tired. And we think, how well he must know me and our weaknesses. So this weekend, you might want to read the story of the incarnation. You know, when Christmas carols come and you sing those words, ask yourself, do I really believe this? Because they are awesome. These great old songs are full of good doctrine. So we ought to be the kind of a church where we really prize worshiping God with our mind, intellectually as well. When you care about somebody, you're curious about them, how they think, what makes them tick. You think of just somebody natural that you love or care about. Well, how about God? He says, I know you're going to try to understand me, but my thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways are past finding out. I would blow your mind. The Holy Spirit is actually like a transformer. You know, when I go overseas, it's 220, and I've got a 110 piece of electric equipment. If I plug that 110 into 220, how many of you know it's going to fry? I took my daughter once to Ireland where I was preaching in a crusade, and it was Chrissy, my daughter, and she plugged her hair dryer in this little hotel into a 220. It blew out all the lights in the hotel, <laughs> and it fried her hair dryer. And I kind of thought, if we tried to plug into God, at 220, he would fry your brain. So the Holy Spirit allows God to kind of step down so he doesn't fry us. Uh, like a little bit, of, it's probably crude, but my idea is he just kind of steps the power down a little bit so we can handle it. You know, otherwise you'd, you'd burn up. He's just too big to contain. Number three, how about cultivate gratitude? You want to be in a good mood? We got this weird thing where somebody gives me something. I'm surprised. I tend to be really grateful for it. And if they give it to me every day for a week, you'd think I'd be seven times more grateful, but we're typically not. What happens is if I get it every day for a week, I start taking it for granted. If I get it every day for a year, I feel entitled to it. I feel like you violated my right if I don't get it. Now, 
what does that say about my relationship with God where God gives me more gifts than I can count every day after day after day, week after week, year after year? Well, that's my right, Rick, and I'm mad if I don't have it. That's ingratitude, see? Another great line from Chesterton. He says, when we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? What a gift, huh? How come every morning I don't say, God, thank you, my feet work again, my hands work? See, how much giving into your life does it take for you to feel gratitude? We have two grandchildren, and sometimes they are just ungrateful little brats. <laughs> you know, the Bible says we go astray from our mother's womb. Boy, is that true. No seminar, no, no podcast. They just, they come right into the world. <laughs> Fallen creatures. They lie, laying in a little bassinet. They lie. Oh, he must be wet. No, oh, he's not wet. No, he lied. He, he can't express it verbally in words, but he's, he's deceived you. Uh, to get what he wants. This, this just starts right out of the womb. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. And so we teach him, you know, we do something for him. When you hand them something, when you give them, what do you say? Thank you. You have to teach gratitude. It doesn't come from our Adamic nature. You've got to teach it. And everybody should be grateful for the smallest thing. You know, I was visiting a friend who just suffered a stroke, and he's lost the left side of the face feeling and the uh, left hand and the left leg. Now, you can't get around with that whole side gone. Now you're immobile. And I remember thinking how carelessly I take every day for granted that I got two hands at work and two feet at work and, and eyes and ears. I mean, this goes on every day. Just miss one of them and see how suddenly you'll be occupied with praying, oh God, help me, make it work. But I ought to be thankful. I breathe regularly. That's nice. Isn't that nice? That's a gift. Every breath I take. Oh no, I got a song coming and I better not. I just, no, don't go there. Okay. It's strange how people whose lives are the worst feel gratitude the most. I was reading about a man named William Porter. He had a really painful, difficult life. When he was born, his mom died. When he was an infant, his dad was a raging alcoholic and left the home. So he had to fend for himself. Somehow he made it to adulthood. So he married a woman. She gave birth to a little baby, and the baby died when it was still just a little baby boy. Then his wife got really, really ill. The company he worked for crashed, and he got arrested for embezzlement. He said he was innocent, but he had to flee the country. He lived in Honduras for a while. Then he got word that his wife, whom he loved, was deathly ill, so he came back to the States. She died. He was captured and incarcerated three years for embezzlement. While he was in prison, he discovered he could write. He had a real gift for writing, and he would write short stories. Now, he knew nobody's going to publish or buy a story from a jailbird, so William Porter wrote under a pen name, O. Henry, a very famous writer. One of the stories he wrote is a Christmas story about a young couple. They're really poor. They're impoverished. Their names are Jim and Della. All Jim has of any value in the world is a gold watch. It was his grandfather's. Then it got passed to his dad, and then it became his. He's managed to hang on to it. He doesn't look at it very often. 
It's on a cheap, ugly leather strap. He couldn't afford a proper chain. The other thing he really loves, because he loves his wife so much, is she has this long, beautiful hair. And he wants to badly give her a wonderful Christmas present, and he wants to do it for her hair, something expensive, an accessory. It's got jewels in it, and back then they called them combs. But he's got no money. So he gets this idea. I could sell my gold watch. I love it, but it'd be worth it just to see her eyes light up and see her put these combs in her hair. So he does it. And he's so excited on Christmas morning that he goes to give them to Della, and he sees to his shock, she's not going to be able to wear these combs. She's cut off her hair and sold it to a wig maker in order to buy a platinum chain for the watch he no longer owns. It's this wonderful Christmas story with this amazing twist, which I've told you, so I've kind of spoiled it. You don't need to read it. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I thought it was great. Then the last paragraph of the story, he writes, he says, And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children living in a flat who sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. You know, one with a grateful heart, I just stand before God and say, God, you've done it again. More gifts than I could ever count. My body, every lung full of air, every friendly face in my life, and especially your son Jesus. Amen. How can I be a giver like you? That'll set the mood. It'll make you happy. Number four, worship Jesus in your problems. Buckle up now. You know, the first Christmas had lots of problems, lots of problems. There were problems for Joseph, there were problems for Mary, problems for Jesus, problems for the family. Jesus' brothers James would decades later would write in his little book these words. You ready? Put it on your refrigerator. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. Count it all joy when you face trials. <clears throat> I'm not really good at that. I don't know how you're doing, but I don't even like that. Do you? You know, it's like anybody else have a hard time counting it all joy when the problems? Oh, come on, please. <laughs> Folks that aren't Christians would love to hear your transparency. I mean, I know it's going to happen, but I, I can't say that the first thought in my mind was, well, whoopee. I don't think so. That wasn't the first thought I had. Like God said, Rick, do you have a problem? Yes, Lord, I got a problem. Rick, are you considering your problem poor joy? No, Lord, I'm not considering my problem poor joy. But here's the thought. It's not counting it joy because I'm happy I have this problem but because God is going to be at work in this problem to make me a better and a different person. He's there. He's going to be at work in whatever you're facing, no matter how nasty it may be. See, this problem, your problem this morning, does not separate you from the love of God. It doesn't have ultimate power over my life, so I can stand apart from the problem and say, go ahead, problem, do your work, make my day. But God and I will make it through this together. 
This week, everybody, you'll have problems. I promise. It's Christmas week. You won't have enough time. You won't have enough money. You won't have enough energy. There'll be somebody who you wish was at your table on Christmas who's not there. And there'll be somebody who's at your table you wish was not there. You're going to have a problem of one sort or another. So this week, say, I'm going to worship God in my problem. When a problem comes, I'm going to say, problem, I count you all joy. God is at work in this problem with me. He saw it coming before I did, and he's going to walk me through it. See, do that this week. Get excited about doing that. Last step, number five, spread the word. You know, when Jesus came, when somebody actually gets confronted with the reality of Jesus, they had to tell everybody. They told people. It just spills out of them. It says, when the shepherds had seen the baby, the Christ child, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. There was an old woman there named Anna in the temple. When Jesus was brought to her, Anna gave thanks to God. She said, thank you, thank you, thank you. She spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So, gang, there's something about God where if I have him, I want to keep him but I have to give him away. When I talk to other people about him in an appropriate manner, I ask, God, would you help me? Would you guide me? Have a good spiritual conversation with this person. Help me to encourage this person. Help me to tell this person, I'd love to pray for you if that's okay. Help me to tell this person, you know, we got a church and we're going to be celebrating Christmas, Christmas Eve. Man, it's going to be great. I'd love for you to come with us. Uh, I was thinking, I've never, ever, had anybody say, no, you can't pray for me, ever. Uh, Many years ago, uh, the largest beer company in Texas, one of our members was a vice president of that company. And in the newspaper, the daughter, one of the children, was in a boat uh, that hit somebody in the dark and killed them, but fled. And the, 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 the daughter of the beer magnet was in the boat. She wasn't driving the boat, but she was in it. It was, you can imagine as a parent, it was horrifying. And finally they found out who the guy was, arrested him, and he committed suicide in prison. But when the vice president took me to that beer company, he, he's in this room, by the way, he, he opened the door for me to say, can I pray for you? And what, what, a, what a privilege, just briefly. You don't pray 14 hours. You don't pray through the Bible. It's just, man, I love you. I'm connected to God. I just want to bless you. I just want to pray. I know you're going through a really hard time. And then years ago, we, when we went through a hard patch, one of the first calls I got was from that executive that my friend here opened the door for. He called me on my cell phone in London, England. And I thought, how cool is that? Could the average Christian foresee that a beer magnet would be calling me to offer prayer? I thought, some of you have a very small God. He can only use nice people, (laughs) which leaves most of you out, uh, (laughs) including me. He can use anybody. He can use anybody. The Bible says he turns the heart of a king any way he wants. He has used people far from God to bless his children, and he can bless you. So don't limit God. 
But there's something about sharing the Lord that when I, when I do that, he becomes more alive inside me when I spread him to people outside of me. To close, there's this guy up in Wisconsin. He lives on a lake. And people who lived around him never wanted to leave the lake in Wisconsin on a weekend. The summers of Wisconsin are quite short. They last about 15 minutes. If you've been to Wisconsin, I'm telling you the truth. And he used to have worship services on Sunday. And he would go to the docks of his friends, pick them up in his boat, and say, you're going to go with me to church. And he actually named his boat the Sinner's Express. He said, I just want to use it so people who don't know God can come to know God. What a cool thing this Christmas Eve, this coming week, if we're all driving the Sinner's Express. What a cool thing. See, there's nobody in San Antonio or the greater San Antonio area who is so smart, so rich, so healthy, so successful, they don't need Jesus. Nobody. And there's nobody God doesn't love. God is always in a good mood. But Jesus said something about what especially kicks up the joy level in heaven. Here's what he said. I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. So what do you say? Let, let's make the angels happy. Let's make laughter in heaven. Let's make our cars, our lives, our church, the sinners express as we go into Christmas weekend. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.